put upon you other than the fact that we're going to order too much food for just our staff. So we'll need someone to help us eat all of it. But if you have been around and you're wondering, is this a place for me, encourage you to come to Starting Point after second service. We would love to feed you. Bring your, your family with you. Uh, just an opportunity for you to hear about who we are as a church. Now, I wanted to start it with that before I said anything else, just in case I lost you with this. We're talking about money again today. Now, I know that some people have reservations about the church talking about money, and I'm not immune to that. Uh, but we, we saw last week when we were in chapter 16 that, that there is a command that's given from Jesus to his followers about how they are to use money. And the command was this, make friends. Use what you have now to make an impact on people. Use your possessions, your, your wealth, your income to get the gospel into places that it's never been before, to help Bibles get in a community that, that have never had a Bible, to use what you have now to make an impact on people's eternal destinations, to, to point people to Jesus, to remove burdens from people, to multiply the church, that Jesus' disciples are to use their money to make friends. And, and why was that? Well, we saw a few reasons. One, wealth's going away anyways. It will fail Two, when we see what Jesus paid to call us friends, to make a wretch his treasure, as we just sang, when we see what Jesus has done for us, well, that, that causes us all the more to be willing to pay this cost for other people. And three, because there is an end coming. And so how can we use what we have now to make an impact on ours and other people's eternal future? And as we talk about money, as I said, I, I'm very much so aware of the fact that, that people have tremendous reservations about the church talking about money. And I was getting my hair cut uh, last month, and, and while I was there, for some reason, the conversation was, was about the church, and it was, it was not the most flattering about it. And, and the guy cutting my hair said the phrase, the church just exists to take people's money. Now, I don't want to cause a confrontation, especially when there's a guy standing above me with scissors in his hand, uh, but, but I spent the time wondering, will he ask me what I do for a living? <laughs> but some people feel that way about the church, and unfortunately, not for good reason. There are certainly times where, where people use their position in the church for profit. The Bible says that, that people who are working in ministry can, ought to be paid a fair wage or, or get an honor from, from doing that, but, but some people go beyond that to lavishly living based off of their position or to exploit people's desire for hope. It's, there are unfortunate examples of that occurring. Even in our passage in Luke 16, it talks about the Pharisees who are described as lovers of money, that these are people who are supposed to be pointing people to God, but instead they live their lives just trying to think, how can we get more power? How can we get more money? And, and make no mis mistake, that is wrong. We should call that out for being wrong. And so we as a church, we, we try to, to make a balance on these things. The, the Bible clearly calls uh, God's followers, those who are following him, to give generously, to uh, see that every good thing that we have is given to us from God, and so we give back. We are a church that exists because of the generosity of people who call this their home. 
that this is their church home. We use that money in, to do what we think God has called us to do, which is to care for all of you as much as you're willing to let us, to, to make an impact on the community. And we try to be as open and honest about all that we're doing. We have a, an external audit every single year. Uh, we have a members meeting every single year where we present, here is what we spent from the past year. And we tell uh, the, the members of the church that. And then the members of the church, not the staff in some shady back room, but the members of the church vote on the budget for the upcoming year. And so we try to, to strike a balance. We want to be as open and honest as we can about the money that's given to us while recognizing God calls us to be generous people. And it's important to recap all that we've talked about. It's important to, to talk about what we do as a church uh, because, well, the passage talks again about money. It, it, and it's not the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we've seen this, and it's not going to be the last time that we see money being brought up. In fact, no person more than Jesus talks about money in the Bible. I guess I could put that positively. Jesus talks more about money than any other person in the Bible. He continues to come back to us. And in some regards, I, I think that's wonderful that he does so because money is such an important topic to us as people. When I do premarital counseling for, for uh, people who are, who are looking to get married, it's not a question of, oh, will we talk about money? It's which week are we gonna talk about money? Because it's, it's, it's a, something that causes so much communication breakdown and unfortunately it leads to many divorces. But it doesn't just impact our ability to have relationships with other people. It, it impacts our, ourselves as well. That money can be something that gets in the way of other good things. Because here's the thing. How we react to the Bible's call to be generous, how we react to, to God telling us to give, uh, whether it's to, to ministries or people doing the work of the ministry, how we react to that tells a lot about us. Because if we are unwilling to hold on to our possessions loosely, if we are unwilling to give of, of what we have, then we are much less likely to be willing to give of ourselves in obedience. The, the commands to, to give of our possessions, no, I can never possibly do that. And then we get to the other commands of deny yourself, die to yourself, live as a, as a living sacrifice. Yeah, I got no problem doing that part. No, if we are unwilling to treat our, our possessions, to hold on to them loosely, we are much less likely to give God our very lives in obedience, which is a much more valuable thing. Now, at risk of losing all of you, this doesn't mean that we're just gonna say everything that we said last week. In, in, despite this being the same chapter, uh, I wanted to spend time in it because it's a really important topic uh, because we have time in the series and, and because the passage that we're in today that, that was just read for us, it could be a little bit tricky to understand so I wanted to spend time in it together. But the passage has a, a slightly different meaning than what we heard last week. Last week it was, how do we use our money? This week is, how do we value our money? Or even just more broadly, what is it that we value? And so we'll continue to come back to that question throughout this. What do we value? What do we value? And to, to see that question, to come to uh, an answer to that question, we will be in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Luke 16, 19. 
So the audience of, of this parable that Jesus tells uh, shifts again. So before he was talking to his disciples about how to use money, and now the audience has shifted to the Pharisees. The, the passage tells us that they were lovers of money, that, that they lived their life in order to get more money. That's what they valued. And then Jesus is, is, is criticizing them as people who think that they are justified themselves. So they think that they're doing everything right, that they're right to try to get more and more possessions. They're right to focus on how they can make this life better for themselves. Because after all, don't they do so many things in God's name? Aren't they doing so many wonderful things? So shouldn't they be trying to get all this? So their focus, their value is entirely on this life that they have. But this runs contrary to what Jesus just taught on. Make friends by use of unrighteous wealth. Use what you have now to make friends. And now the Pharisees are called lovers of money. You almost get like this little play on words. So instead of following God's command, instead of following what God values, the Pharisees have made themselves friends of money. And so to, to help them to, to see what it is that they value, to hopefully shift to value what God instead does, Jesus tells this parable in Luke 16. Let me read for us uh, verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So I, I'm going to pause right there because there, there's so much packed into this one little verse. It starts by telling us that he is a rich man, uh, but it goes into detail to tell us just how rich he is. I mean, just look at the clothes, the descriptions that we have. First, it says that he's, he's clothed in purple. Now, the dye for purple was, was so difficult to get and so rare at the time that it was, it was, just, uh, it was only used for royalty or those who were very wealthy because uh, they were the only people who could afford it. And then it says that he has these fine linen. So these were imported fabrics that, that he would wear underneath that purple robe that he was wearing. So uh, essentially, this man is spending more on underwear than people were making in a year at the time let alone with what he's wearing, what it is, uh, we see other details of how he's spending his money. It says that he feasted sumptuously every day. Back in chapter 15, we talked about uh, how the father throws this feast when his prodigal son returns to him. He kills the fattened calf, and we said, this is an incredibly rare thing to do. They only did this on special occasions. This man did that every single day. That was his level of income. Later on in the passage, it talks about his house has a gate at it, and, and that was only for estates or compounds, which were really rare. Uh, all this is to say, we're, we're given so many details in this passage of, of this man being extraordinarily wealthy. Now, I, I do want to make it very clear. Nowhere in the passage does it say that this man is wrong to have these things. Nowhere in the passage is he critiqued for having money. Nowhere does it, does it say that you, he shouldn't have these things or he's, he's bad to be uh, rich. Instead, the, it's, it's helpful to remember who the audience is. It's the Pharisees, the lovers of money, the ones who thought they were justified to themselves. Jesus creates this character of the rich man as he's telling this story. He's given all these details and every single one of them, the Pharisees would have been like, yeah, that's the life. I wish... I could look like that. Something must be right about this man if, if he has all these things. He must be doing something right. See, for them, health and wealth were these signs of God's blessing. 
And those things certainly are a blessing from God, but to assume that this man is in right standing with God, that he's truly valuing what God values just because of what he has, well, that's not how God operates. Look at verse 20. And at his gate, at the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, but the rich man also died and was buried. So the comparison between the rich man and and this poor man named Lazarus is, is, is incredibly striking where the rich man is clothed in just uh, the most expensive attire that he could have at the time. Uh, Lazarus instead is covered with sores, unable to defend himself from the scavenging dogs that are coming and licking at them. While the rich man is, is inside, just on the other side of the gate, feasting every single day, Lazarus is outside, left out, wishing even just for the crumbs that fall from his table. And then both die, and we get another description. The rich man, it says, is buried. Even as as he dies, he's, he's taken care of, he's well thought of by the people. We don't get told that Lazarus is buried. See, at the time, this would have been the most shameful thing to be left out just for, just for the, the, the scavenging animals to come after, you know, like the dogs that are already circling him. To be left out was such a shameful act at the time. And so the Pharisees would have heard this and be thinking, what, what did this guy do? Like, he must be the most despicable of person to be living like this. But the rich man, like, yeah, look at his life. That, that's clearly what, what we ought to be aiming for. But Jesus reverses this in the parable. Look at verse 23. So this is the rich man. He's in Hades being in torment. He lifts his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. So we see this reversal of fortunes here. Before Lazarus was uh, outside looking up at the man's house just wishing for some sort of comfort, now we have the rich man looking up and seeing Lazarus. Maybe you notice that little detail? He calls out and knows his name. It's not, oh, it's that guy who used to hang out outside my gate. It's send Lazarus. He knows him. He knows him enough to call him by name. This means that while he was inside uh, feasting, wearing his fancy underwear, he knew that there was a man just outside, a man he knows enough to know his name, knows what he's going through, and yet he did nothing. And here we, we have him in torment and anguish. He looks up and he doesn't apologize he doesn't say, you know, now that I've, I've gotten here, I, I recognize I should have done something for you, Lazarus. I, maybe he maybe should have helped even, even a little bit. What does he do? He issues a command. Send Lazarus to me. 
There's no change in his life. Even though he's, he's experiencing this right now, he, he's still the same rich man as before. He still thinks because of what he's done with his life that he's in a better spot than Lazarus. Yes, he's in pain, he's in anguish, and Lazarus is, is experiencing some comfort. He still thinks that he's in a position to issue the commands. He still thinks that he is in a higher position. His value system tells him that he is still better off but we are told that he is in torment, that he's in pain, and and he calls for Lazarus to, to just dip a finger in water so that he can find some relief. That, that even just the little droplets that could come off of a fingertip would be some comfort to him. Just little specks, little flecks of water would, would provide him some relief, much like Lazarus was on the other side of the gate dreaming about crumbs. But this is the answer he receives in verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm uh, has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I I think the important thing to understand what's going on here is that phrase, in your lifetime, you in your lifetime received your good things. So in other words, Lazarus turns to this rich man and says, rich man, you wanted, uh, what you wanted most in life what you valued, well, that was extravagant clothes. It was opulent feasts, and you got everything you wanted. Your life was focused on you. You valued getting more and more for yourself, and you got everything you ever dreamed of. The object of your value was you, and that's what you got, and that has led you here. That has brought you to this place of anguish, So you sought comfort in your life. You were focused just on what you had on earth. Lazarus sought a different comfort. So now you are in anguish and Lazarus is receiving a better comfort here. But the the rich man's not done. This is what he says in verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he, and he said, no, no, Father Abraham, if someone, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead." As we said, the, the, the whole purpose of, of chapter 16 is, is to talk about money. Uh, we saw it in the first parable. We see it in the description of the Pharisees. This is talking about this rich man whose value system is seeing what can he get for himself? How can he amass more and more in this life? How, how can he bring comfort to himself? His, his focus is on his life on this earth, and he gets everything he wanted. The, the Pharisees would have heard that and said, yes, that's the life. We too are trying to live in such a way. And so so the focus of this passage is saying if, you're, if what drives you is amassing more in this life 
If, if you're doing whatever you can to find comfort for yourself in this life, then there is no comfort for you in the life to come. The point of the parable is saying that if we value anything over and apart from God, then we will be apart from God. And yet, we have to talk about our eternal future. We have to spend some time talking about that. That's not the point of the parable, but it seems like we must spend some time talking about that idea. It's not the main point of what's going on here. Jesus isn't trying to give a detailed description as, uh, to the question, what happens to us after we die? Instead, he's trying to teach about how do we, what do we value? What is it that we are focused on? But it is something that Jesus talks about quite a bit elsewhere, quite a bit throughout the Gospels. Now, some people read this and, and uh, they miss what the point of a parable is. The parable is not to give us details. It, it's to drive us to one specific point. And so they'll, they'll read the description of the rich man and Lazarus and come to conclusions. Oh, so, so clearly when, when people are in heaven, they can see and talk to people in hell. That's not what it's trying to teach us. It's trying to show what this man valued. This conversation is there to continue to show us what it is that he valued. And in fact, the whole rest of the Bible talks about there being a separation between the two. And so while the focus is not to give us the details of what happens uh, after we die, it, it is so linked to the idea of what our eternal future is that if th that wasn't true, if there are things that are assumed in this parable aren't true, then the whole point of the parable falls apart. And so what is it that we can learn about our eternal future? What is it that we can learn about the coming heaven and the coming hell? Now, I get that these are not popular or, or pleasant things to even talk about. It, it's difficult even for Christians to believe in these things. I mean, how do you square the idea of, of torment, of anguish with the fact that we call God loving? How do we say this series is called Good News for All People? How can there be good news if there's something so awful coming? People read about hell and they, they think of God as cruel. Oftentimes we have images that come to our mind, maybe influenced by art, uh, especially medieval art, of, of just the brutal depictions of torture going on. Or maybe we, we think of it in layers like Dante gives us. But the thing about these artistic renderings is, I mean, they're just that. that we are often right to reject some of these brutal images because that's not what the Bible teaches us. But instead, what we see is that the, the truth of heaven, the truth of hell, a, a coming judgment, those are things that are presented to us in the Bible. They are things that are presented to us as true. They are things presented to us as a coming future. And so how can we, what can we learn from even this parable that is talking to us about wealth, talking to us about what we value, what can we learn about our coming future even from this. Well, a couple things that, that I, I want us to come away with. Uh, the first thing is that the righteous, those who are trusting in God, those who put their value in God, the righteous are immediately brought into a place of God's presence. The righteous are immediately brought into a place of God's presence. We, we don't know what's going on with Abraham's side that's talked about in this passage, but we do see it's a place of comfort for Lazarus that he is receiving that here. 
And we, we do see, who is it that brings him to the place? Well, it's the angels. The angels are God's messenger. He directs them. He uses them. So God is using his angels to bring Lazarus into his comfort immediately after his death. So the righteous are immediately brought into a place of God's uh, presence. The flip side of that is the unrighteous, those who put their value in anything other than God. The unrighteous experience torment and separation. Some people think that, that when those who aren't following God, uh, that, uh, when they die, that they're annihilated, they just cease to exist. But that's not what we see happening here. There is conscious torment. The, the description that's being used is anguish uh, of this unquenchable thirst that's being had. Now, again, I, I don't want to make too big of a point out of the details, but, but at least we, we can see it, it is something uh, deeply undesirable. I don't want to push what, what happens there because we aren't fully told, but it is something deeply undesirable. It is a conscious punishment for those who put their value in anything other than God. Now, I, I, I know this is not a popular point to make. It's not something pleasant to be thinking of. The idea of talking about this is, is not as some sort of scare tactic of like, look at this awful thing that's coming to you after you die. It's not to, to use the, the phrases turn or, or burn. It's not to offer people fire insurance. Jesus is your fire insurance or the other corny ways that, that people have said this throughout the years because what are we doing in that tactic? If we are presenting some scary picture of what happened to people who don't tr turn to God, we're not teaching people to value God. They're still valuing the same thing. They're just trying to do what they can to save their own skin. The point of talking about hell is, as well is not for us to be in this room and, and looking at, man, how great is it that we are going to be saved? How wonderful is it that we don't have to go through that, but, you know, those people out there, they are all going to hell. Because you know what that's like? It's like being locked behind a gate, rejoicing in what we have, while there's people just on the other side who are lacking I know that this is something that's hard for us to wrestle with emotionally. The fact that there is a wonderful, eternal future for those who trust in Jesus, and the fact that there is a place of torment and anguish for those who do not, when we have people we know and care about and love who do not, this is something that's, that's, that's so hard for us to wrestle with. It, it, it does feel cruel at times. And yet what we see is, is that it's not incompatible with the good news. The truth that, that there is a hell is, is not something that, that is uh, incompatible with good news. Instead, it's, it's the quenching of one of our deepest desires that all of us, the cry of every person is for justice. The most common complaint on the playground is that's not fair. And we spend the rest of our lives having more and more opportunities to say that's not fair. People experiencing just absolute horrific pain caused to them by other people, that's not fair. People not having enough food, wondering if they're gonna live or die, that's not fair. 
Corporations having record profits while, while people struggle to pay bills. That's not fair. Dictators. Governments that oppress people. There, there's so many reasons for us to say that's not fair. And what we see uh, in, in, in the truth of hell is that the justice that we crave is brought about in the end. That every wrong is righted. Every mischaracter, uh, mis, uh, uh, every, every absence of justice is, is finally brought to happen. Every, everyone who has is, done something horrible has, is, is meeting justice in the end. That every bit of injustice is satisfied. And yet what we see at the end is that it's not according to our standard of justice. It's instead by a perfect God, which we all run afoul of, which we all fail to live up to that standard. We all are responsible for injustices. And yet what makes hell part of the good news. In fact, what makes the good news truly great is that that earned destination for all of us, instead, the injustices that we are responsible for are satisfied in Jesus. It's not turn or this awful thing's gonna happen to you. It's, yeah, that was my future. But something good has come something more valuable has been offered. This gets us to the next part that we can learn about our future from this. Uh, there is a finality in death. We see that we have an eternal future, whether it's with God in his comfort or in anguish in hell, there is an eternal future coming and yet there is a finality in death. See, if we are unwilling to value what God values, if we are unwilling to value something lasting with our lives now, well, there is no changing of that in the end. There's no, uh, there's no finding va lasting value after we die. And we, we see that in this command from this rich man, send uh, Lazarus to go be like Marley's ghost from a Christmas carol and, and tell my brothers to change their ways. And, and it may look to us like, yes, he's finally thinking of other people, but he's not. His family is an extension of himself. What, what brings honor and shame to his family brings honor and shame to himself. He's still being just as selfish as before. But the answer that's given to him is he has Moses and the prophets. He is God's word. If, he doesn't, if they don't trust in what God has revealed, if they don't see what God has said he values in his word, if they don't turn to something that's lasting rather than they're just looking at their lives, looking to amass, thinking that this is all there is, if they don't see what God has called them to do here, nothing's gonna change that. And that gets us to the last thing that we learn about our future from this. And it's, it's actually a bit more of an implication there's an end coming, a place of comfort with God, a place of torment, uh, torment separated. The, that this is coming for all people and what we do now with our lives matter. There's no changing at the end. But the implication that we get from this passage is that there is time today. There is still time today. And we see that with, with verse 30, this, this demand from this rich man, send uh, Lazarus. If they, if they hear from someone from the dead, they will 
repent. They'll repent. They'll turn from valuing other things and instead value God. And see, it's, it's so easy for, for people to read this parable and go, oh, so the rich people go to hell. That's not what this passage says. In fact, the Old Testament, uh, time and time again, gives us a picture of Abraham being incredibly wealthy. And where is he in the parable? It's so easy for, for us to, to read this parable and say, okay, so those who have a, a rough go of things in this life, th- uh, those who are, are poor, they go to heaven. That's not what this parable says. Or, or to think like, man, if, if this rich man was just a little bit nicer, if he did just a couple more good things, he would have earned his way into heaven. That's not what this parable says. Instead, it rests on that idea of repentance. He was someone who valued his life who did whatever he could to find comfort for his life. But he sees the need for repentance, to value something other than that, to find lasting value in what God calls us to value. The the audience of the parable is the Pharisees. They loved money. They justified themselves. They they thought they were doing enough right. They thought they were doing enough good things that, oh, God's going to have to save us. God's going to have to bless us. And yet that's not something that we can force God into. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves. Instead, Jesus tells this parable to ask the question, what do you value? What do you value? There's two ways of living here. And it rests on the fact of what is to come. Because if we think that there is a place of justice being brought, if we think there is a place of comfort on the horizon, if we think that God is calling us to live in a way that's better for us, that's more valuable, then that will be demonstrated in how we live. If we think what God has called us to is more valuable, we will live in such a way that reflects that. We will live as he's called us to do all throughout his Bible all throughout his word to us, which constantly says things uh, that like, like caring for the, the poor, bringing the naked homeless into your house to, to loose the bonds of wickedness. This, this all comes from Isaiah 58, by the way. Are we living in a way that reflects what God values? Or the other side of that, do we think this life is all that really matters? Or just amassing for now? trying to find comfort? Is our focus just on us? Because the horrifying reality is we will receive that. If the only thing that's valuable is right now, we will get that and only that. See, the thing about life is, is we, we tend to get out of it what we want. Maybe not to the extent that this rich man had this extra, extraordinary amount of wealth, but if our focus is ourselves, well, we'll be given ourselves. If our focus is this life, well, we can have this life. Instead, is our focus on what God calls us to value, that we see that he has given us something that's more valuable, that we see he's calling us to something of greater comfort, and do we live in such a way? And if that's true for us, if we see what God has called us to is better, is of greater comfort, greater significance, then that will be demonstrated in how we live. We view our lives, our money, our, our possessions in light of this. We, we spend our time telling people about the good news that there is something better that's coming. We, we, we open the gate. We, we treat people generously. We treat people with compassion because we have found something of greater value. And why is that? Because there is a day coming 
or it's too late to tell others about Jesus. It's too late to hold on to our wealth loosely. It's too late to see that there is something more than this life. And yet the implication is there's still time today. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful of all that you've done for us, that you have given us life, and that in this life we look for something valuable. We look for something to put our energy and efforts behind, and oftentimes it's easy to fall into the trappings of looking around this world and thinking this is it, to living our lives to make them as comfortable as possible now, to make them as secure as possible now, that our focus, our energies, our efforts are directed towards that. And yet, if what we say is true, if we believe that you have come bringing life eternal, if we believe that there is something on the horizon, if we believe that there is coming a time when those who trust in you, who value you, are brought into your eternal comfort, and those who turn away from you are brought into a place of torment, if we believe that is true, that ought to be reflected in how we live now. That ought to be demonstrated in how we treat others now. So as we go out, may we find more and more opportunities to live for you as you've called us to, as you've given us your word to show us what it is you value. So it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen.